0: What's going on, everyone? I'm Jeff St. Pierre, and this is episode 139 of the Adult Education Podcast. This week, I'm speaking with the host of the podcast, 60 Songs That Explain the 90s, Mr. Rob Harbilla. First, thanks for checking out the show. I appreciate you sharing some of your day with me. If this is your first time listening to the Adult Education Podcast, I'd like to say welcome to the family. I'd love it if you would subscribe to the show so you're updated for all future episodes, and you know if you wouldn't mind leaving a nice rating or review, I'd appreciate that too. If you do want to connect with me, the best way to do that is through Instagram. We are at Adult Education Podcast. Uh, you can see when new episodes are posted, and you can message me with any comments, questions, and suggestions for future topics or guests. I've never found interviewing people to be all that difficult. Now, that's not to say that all of my interviews are great. There are plenty that I will never let you hear. But the whole idea for an interview is to get someone into a comfortable conversation. And I guess that's just never been a huge challenge for me. What is hard, though, is interviewing someone that I'm a fan of. I don't really know how to explain it. It it feels like there's added pressure. Like, I already know a lot about them, so asking questions that I already know the answers to kind of feels weird. Then there's the delicate balance of having a good question without becoming an awkward fanboy in the process. Now I tell you that so you know what kind of horror I faced as I prepared for today's conversation. This week I had a chance to speak with rock critic and podcast host Rob Harvilla. Rob is the host of my all-time favorite podcast 60 Songs That Explain the 90s. I've listened to every episode over the last three years and have wanted to do this interview for a long time, actually. Thankfully, we were finally able to connect. What made this extremely hard to prepare for is that I feel as though Rob and I have very similar weird music tastes. When he references artists during his pod Cast that are a little bit off the beaten path of pop culture. It's usually an artist that I'm a fan of, like he did a whole episode on sunny day real estate and spent a good portion of another discussing failure, both artists that had big impacts on my musical tastes growing up. And Rob has this way of discussing his own history that makes the listener feel like he was someone we all knew in high school. I mean, his experiences, though they were in Ohio, are not too dissimilar from my own growing up in New Hampshire in the 90s. And that's, to me, the biggest reason his podcast has connected with so many people. I think we all feel like we know this guy, like he was the guy that sat next to us in class and wrote band names on his school book that was covered in a paper bag that he got at a grocery store. I think we all know who he is and we feel that connection. Rob is getting ready to wrap up the podcast here in a few weeks, which is very disappointing to me, but he did just release a book titled the same, 60 Songs That Explain the 90s. It takes a lot of the thoughts and themes from the podcast and puts them into different perspectives in book form it's really great work especially if you're a music nerd like myself all right enough from me please enjoy my conversation with rob harvilla
1: hello hey how are you i am excellent how are you i am uh, i'm great it's a pleasure to talk to you The pleasure to talk to you. In the early afternoon, the lighting situation in my office becomes just just quite vexing and also like celestial at the same time. It's this rounded window up there that I can't reach to cover, but I'm sorry that I look very strange at the moment.
0: No, you know, it does have a magical quality to it. You know what? The plus side here is I don't record the video. I just record the audio. I just like to see who I'm talking to. That's a great
1: relief to me. No, I, I I do the same thing. I just, I cannot handle video at all.
0: Well, I guess, you know, it's interesting. I wasn't, gonna ask this question but since you just sort of said it how does it feel to be sort of on the other end of things now
1: that you're doing this book it's super surreal you know i've been a working rock critic for 23 years since 2000 and i always figured in an abstract vague way that it would end with a book that i would write a book that was a culmination you know of my career and my genius etc and then it started to occur to me that i had to write it for that to ever happen and then I was depressed about that for like five to 10 years. And so that was sort of a trip. But I, it's it's surreal to me. I have, you know, I I dreamed for years about the moment where the box with your books arrives, you know, and it's on your porch and you bring it in and you open it. And it says, the box is sitting here in my office for weeks and I'm scared to open it. I'm not scared to open it, but it's just, it just doesn't, It there's a weird dissonance between I know that this book is coming out in a week exactly. And I don't, I don't believe that actually at all it it doesn't feel quite real to me yet in a pleasant way i think but it's very strange to be on the other end of that but it's it's so awesome just to talk to people who are interested you know and to be you know on the other side of this for once.
0: Well, it's kind of cool to see it all come together because I I came across your podcast fairly early on in its life cycle. And you almost, this podcast has sort of felt like that baby band that you fall in love with when no one else knows (laughs) them. You're at a club with three other people Uh watching them, cheering them on. And now you can't afford to buy tickets because they're selling three nights out at the biggest stadium in the planet. You know, it's kind of funny to watch the progression of this show to I'm telling people that have never heard of it to now people are coming to me. Yeah. Have you heard this podcast? I'm like, yes, I told you about it two years ago. Like- you
1: were into me when it was cool. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Totally. <laughs> totally. It's been wild. You know, I'd started this in 2020, you know, in the depths of COVID, you know, and I'm just in lockdown in my house with my family. And immediately I just the the i got more of a response and more intensive a response than anything i've ever gotten being like a working critic right and i was trying to figure out why that is and i think that nostalgia you know and just that that's a factor the parasocial aspect of podcasting right just hearing somebody's voice you know and taking walks with them or road trips with them like it's just a very different experience than reading an album review or whatever there's a naturally a more personal connection that we have if it works right and then as the show progresses, I'm like telling more and more and longer and longer and loopier loopier stories about myself. Like I'm getting personal, like not overly so I hope, but I didn't start this show thinking that I was going to tell stories from my childhood. You know, I don't know what I thought when I started it, but it was the realization that like my personal stories, which are not of general interest really to anybody else. Like I, I, it, by talking about my personal memories, it can activate other people's personal memories, you know, that nostalgia works like that the same way songwriting works, you know, that the more specific a song is, the more, the more universal it somehow becomes, you know, because you know how much it means to the singer, you know, and then it means something special, if if it's something entirely different to you. You know, I just, it's that, that's been a fascinating thing to experience, you know, from this side.
0: I almost kind of want you to go back and sort of do it over in a way because I think back to those first few episodes, like Alanis Morris that <laughs> was the first episode. And I, I'd almost like to see you do that one again now, now that you're in a different groove with the show. Does that make sense?
1: I've thought about that. I have for sure thought about that. Because you know, the the simplest and funniest way to put it is that the show is ten times longer <laughs> than it was when it started the Atlantis. It's like It's like 1500 words, maybe 2000. You know, Pantera was (laughs) 10,000. The cardigans, the cardigans, which I just did, was like 8,500. Like the show is just longer now. And I have seriously thought, you know, about like, I'd love to talk to Miss about Alinas for that long or Missy Elliott for that long or Mariah Carey for that long, for that matter. You know, I have seriously thought about doing that and I may still do that. But yeah, the the pure length of the thing is definitely the biggest difference between episode one and episode 108.
0: Uh, I'm sure everybody, when they talk to you about it, tells you their favorite episode. So I'm kind of curious, what's the most commonly referenced episode?
1: Good question. What are people talking to me about? People like the Third Eye Blind, how big of a jerk the Third Eye Blind guy is, you know, like he's its sort of a singularly villainous figure, you know, so much so that I tried to, like, orient an entire chapter of the book around him, right? But, you know, just how adversarial he was with other bands, and with his own bandmates, just the, the litany of people talking shit about that guy, <laughs> I think was very amusing. To people, you know, inevitably the Nirvana episode is going to be a big deal, you know, and the Courtney love of it all like exponentially multiplied that, you know, and I was glad I always figured that would be the last one right that was going to be the 60th, then the 90th and then the 120th and then that started to feel anticlimactic to me and it's like maybe, maybe do it earlier so it's still somewhat surprising and then the Courtney of it all. Help spur that along. But the Nirvana episode, I think by far is the most listened to, the most downloaded. Either that or Alanis, because like people go all the way back to the beginning. Like this isn't linear or serial. There's no real logic to the order in which these songs are occurring. But still, I do this when I listen to I want to go back to the very beginning, you know, even if that's five years, even if I'm never actually going to listen to everything. Like I'm a completist in that sense. And I think that holds true. I'm trying to think of what else people have asked me about in particular. Those are the, those are the ones that are occurring to me. Mariah Carey, you know, which was very early on and was like my sort of first, like sort of more sentimental or emo episode. Right. Cause that was the, you know, it was all I want for Christmas is you. It was Christmas 2020. It was the first Christmas of COVID, you know, where everyone's like, Oh, can I even go visit my family Like, I think it was just a really intense and lonely time And that's, you know, going back and reading my scripts and listening to these things from the beginning, you know, I think that's an early mile marker in me starting to get a little more personal and realizing that the scope of this show could be widened a little bit, you know, that it can speak to current events without actually mentioning current events, you know, like there was some mood that I was in, certainly, and it felt like a lot of people were in right at that time that I could sort of capture and use as a prism through which to listen to Mariah Carey. I think that was an important episode, and I do hear about that one a little bit, which is awesome. Yeah, I think you you hit the
0: nail on the head with that one for sure. Uh, for me, my personal favorite was the Depeche Mode one. And the reason oh, being is I've never been able to talk to anybody in my life with the same passion for failure that I heard you give in that. Oh, man. I, I mean, I was man. just listening to you talk about failure and I'm like, this guy gets it.
1: Where has he been <laughs> for the rest of my life? Like, what is going on? <laughs> fantastic planet was so rad like I was a college radio record i was in i was at i was a college radio dj and like you couldn't actually hear our college radio station on campus you know but it didn't matter like i just had a stack of cds behind me like a wall right and i could listen to anything and like i think we were playing sergeant politeness like in rotation right and so i play the whole record and it blows my mind you know i'm a full-blown radiohead guy by that point right it's all about okay computer for me and so that's that scratches the same itch. But no, that was a huge band to me in college. Did you see any of the reunion stuff? I saw them in Cleveland. I mean, it was pre-COVID, but probably somewhere 2017, 2018. Like I saw them you know, at the grog shop or whatever in Cleveland. And I had never seen them in their prime or at the time, of course. And no, I love that band so much. That's really rad. Uh,
0: No, I unfortunately did miss that tour and I'm still very bummed about it. Uh, I remember specifically because they played the same night my radio station had its big annual festival. So I couldn't make it because, well, I mean, failure is not paying my bills. My my job is. So I kind of had to put the
1: focus Oh God, (laughs) that cover of Enjoy the Silence is so great. I love it so much. That
0: whole tribute album is incredible. And you're the only it other is. person I've ever heard that actually owns it or knows of it. Um, that Rammstein cover on there, that strip song still haunts my nightmares to this day.
1: <laughs> oh, it's hilarious. I The bummer I'm looking it up right now, but tribute albums and even compilations did not survive the switch to streaming. Yeah. Right. Just the way that the rights work. Or whatever, like something like no alternative, right? You know, or even like the reality bite soundtrack. Even like the biggest soundtracks now just aren't on streaming in the same way. And I'm fairly certain that I had to go back and find like the hard drive that had the ripped MP3s of that record. Like it's either that or piece it together on YouTube, which I do all the time, of course. But like, yeah, it's a real drag that 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 the youth of America today cannot just dial up Romstein. Rammstein, whatever, doing doing (laughs) Stripped. It's hilarious. That's such a great album.
0: It is really good. You know, it's funny. I work in country radio as my my paying oh. job, although my my heart lies mostly with rock music. But I kind of fell into country music, and I think the tributes yeah. and the soundtracks still sort of work in country because their fans have not been as quick to adopt uh, streaming and digital services. So they actually you know, just Garth, put right, yeah, yeah they just put a Judds tribute out a week or two ago, and I, I was surprised when I saw it because I was like, who's buying these things? But the country audience still buys physical media in that way. So it's interesting. Any Chesney,
1: any Chesney albums, yes, that's absolutely true. That's wild. Did you, so did you like country music at all? I knew when nothing about it. I knew nothing about it. <laughs> my, my line That's is not- that the
0: the day I was driving into work for the first day, I heard Brad Paisley's song online. And I don't know if you're familiar with that one, but it's I it's-
1: am very familiar with online. It's yeah. a great song. It's a great entry point. He was I loved him, you know, when I was getting into country and this was around like 2011. I was working for like a streaming service and I became the culture uh, the country editor. By default, And it was right at the point where like Brad Paisley, Kenny Chesney, you know, early Jason Aldean, you know, like uh, Eric Church's Chief was yeah. like a huge, huge record to me. That was sort of my gateway where like I got it with that record. That's really cool, but you're into it now, yeah, I, I, get mean, you. I,
0: I think there's been a lot of cool stuff, like, I mean, as you as yeah. you know, because you worked around that same time, I came in in two thousand and eight. so it a similar time period. And there was a lot of rock influence coming into country at that time. Or, so oh, there okay. were. A lot of yeah, a lot of bands that like were an easy transition for me to really enjoy. And and now I've gotten to appreciate Whoa. a lot of them. And the artists are really cool to talk to. They love, you know, having conversations yeah. and hanging out, which I always appreciate too. So that's
1: awesome.
0: I did get my first taste of what Wednesdays are gonna feel like when your show is over last week when you did not post an episode.
1: I woke up and I was I... like, oh man, there's where 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 is it (laughs) i did not want to do that i i was very 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 bummed to do that and yeah i have a lot of anxiety about the show ending for sure it is we got to stop you know i think inherent to a project like this is it has to stop there has to be a finite point you know there's there's it's just it's it's time you know i it's very funny to me that we kept extending it you know and 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 what you know sincerely, I would get I would think I was near the end and then I would get near the end and I'd be like, I don't want to stop. I got all these songs I want to do on. I would keep going, you know, and I got away with that twice. But it's, it's time to find something else to do, which I will do immediately. I don't know what that is yet. I really wish that I did, but I don't. But like I have a lot of I'm really bummed about the show ending, but I do. I do think it's time and I am excited, you know, to try and keep this momentum going to do something else. Um t- I don't want to talk just about the podcast the entire
0: time but I know the podcast and the book are intertwined but I think it's interesting yeah, it's just, some yeah. of the song choices that you've made are not necessarily the obvious choice for that particular artist you know I made a little list here yeah. things like Offspring's sure. Pretty Fly for a White Guy that might not have been my Offspring choice I mean you you lay out a great yeah. case for it but maybe isn't the choice that I would have had for them or Counting Crows Along December smashing pumpkins mayonnaise mm-hmm. not necessarily the song that everyone knows by them you no.
1: right so mayonnaise was very very early and bill simmons was the guest and that that was a bill simmons suggestion you know sometimes the artist and even the song are suggested by the guests and i really love that you know i i love doing something you know getting out of my own head in that way is really helpful you know i'm sure i'm sure i at one time i thought i do i like just 1979 of course the offspring like i'm looking at this and i think what shocked me when I started to think about an Offspring episode was that I thought Smash, like Self Esteem, come out and play were so huge to me at the time. But like the songs from that record are bigger. Like The Kids Aren't All Right is the biggest, the most streaming on Spotify anyway, Offspring song. Like I am very curious about those moments when the song that feels the biggest in real time turns out to not be the biggest. And I know that there are very concrete examples of this that I'm not going to be able to think of now. But I I feel like the cranberries used to work like that. Like it wasn't immediately obvious that zombie was going to be so much bigger, even than Linger in Dreams, as big as they are. You know, I think it's with the fullness of time. Like Blink 182 is interesting in that sense. You know, and that I wouldn't have necessarily picked like all the small things as like the one necessarily that everybody knows. And so, yeah, I just in some cases you want to pick, you know, the crowd pleaser, the most obvious song. You know, I, I toyed with the idea of doing something different for Nirvana. For a while and then didn't because it's just it's just churly. It's just obnoxious, really, to do anything other than smells like Teen Spirit. But like I do, I did dig doing a different Smashing Pumpkin song. I for whatever reason, that second Counting Crows record just really, really, really got to me at the time in a way that the first one didn't. I was cool with it. I listened, I liked the radio hits or whatever, but it was recovering the satellites that really got to me. And like I tried to convey that in the sense that along December has emerged like as this shadow sort of Christmas song, you know, like I, that was a really cool arc to me. And so I do want to keep that opportunity open, like Portis head, right? Like the one I just did, I would have sworn to you that sour times was like the song biggest song from them. And it turns out it's not, it's glory box, you know, that has twice as many, three times as many, like I really love the way that these are living Records, still, you know, even if it's over streaming, even if, you know, that's not a complete picture, it does give you a sense of how these albums evolve over time and how some songs overtake other songs, even if the other songs seemed ubiquitous, like in the 90s themselves.
0: It is interesting to look at streaming now and get almost a real-time look at what people are listening to. I sort of grew up, so you're a couple years older than I am, so we have similar similar growth in rock music. I, I was more on the punk rock yeah. side of things in the late 90s, but a lot of the bands huh. have kind of resurfaced in the last few years to do reunion tours or do new albums, and a, a big impetus for that was they realized, wow, people are actually still listening to our shit online. Like, this is great. Yeah. And I think that's kind of cool to be able to look at that that, even for your show, for research purposes, to look at things and go, well, damn, this is the song. Like, I, I it's amazing to have that real-time info and not wait for, like, Billboard or SoundScan or whatever right, to right. tell us.
1: Just the realization, like, I knew Wonderwall was a huge song, you know, I figured it would endure. I didn't think I would have a billion, right. you know, Spotify plays, a billion, you know, YouTube views, you know, that's on another level entirely, you know, to hear people, you know, singing Don't Look Back in Anger. You know, at vigils, you know, in England, still like that's tremendously moving. And yeah, I it's it's an imperfect metric, but Spotify, you know, as you say, just to watch the numbers change and, and punk rock especially, like Blink One Eighty Two, like touring arenas, putting out new records, you know, in twenty twenty three, I don't think is something you would have imagined for them, like in two thousand three or in twenty thirteen, even. But it's just this this phenomenon of new generations, younger people now discovering these bands and finding something in them that I found in them when I was young in 1996. Like, that's awesome.
0: I love the, uh, the, the idea of green day going on tour to massive stadiums. I do feel like they missed the boat because it's green day, smashing pumpkins and rancid. I feel like it could have been green day offspring rancid and they all could have played their 1994 seminal albums from start to finish.
1: Oh, So great. Like how amazing would that have been? (laughs) That would have been extremely amazing, you know, starting off with Rancid. Is that Let's Go? Yeah. I, I want to say Let's Go, yeah. All right. No, that would be fantastic. You know, I was talking with somebody yesterday, like, the biggest concert in Ohio in the 90s, I, from my perspective, was Green Day at Blossom Music Center, like a big outdoor amphitheater, you know, right when Dookie was getting huge, like right there in 1994. You know and there was a grass fight on the lawn and like everybody seemed to be at that show it was like a back to school show almost and i love talking to people who grew up in the ohio in the cleveland area who were there also like that was so formative to me and think about them still putting out records you know and the way that like american idiot like to have a second act that successful you know not a lot of bands did you know pearl jam hasn't had an album at least as big as their first three kind of by choice, right? Like Pearl Jam sort of decided on having more of a touring, you know, core fan base, you know, not trying to be pop stars, even rock stars necessarily anymore. And that's awesome. You know, Dave Matthews band being like the biggest touring act of the first decade of the 2000s, you know, and still now and still being ubiquitous as they were in the 90s like oh that is so cool to me you know
0: yep I've got one of those Green Day memories too I grew up just north of Boston so that infamous Green Day show in Boston that was the free radio station thing I was
1: I've read about that literally
0: on my way to the show and Uh, my mom was like this is not happening you are coming home like you are not going to be a part of this action and I was I I, like had this hatred for her in a weird way for a long time for that because I missed that but she probably saved my life in some ways might not I was going
1: to say, I can understand your anger in the moment, but that's an excellent mom move right there because that did not sound like a good time, actually.
0: Yes. Uh, so diving back into the book and the podcast, you, know, you mentioned Third Eye Blind earlier. And one thing that I, that I feel like I'd have a hard time with if I were ever to try to be a rock critic is being critical without being a dick. And I think there there's a fine line between writing something to express an emotion or express a feeling about what you're listening to or what these people are about, where you kind of have to stop in a way. Have you found yourself into trouble? Like Third Eye Blind is a great example. Have you ever found yourself in trouble by crossing that line? And people are like, hey, Rob, you know, that was kind of mean what you just did.
1: I I think it was important to me subconsciously at first, but then more consciously as I went on that I didn't want to be a dick, right, that that this worked so much better as a celebration, you know, and it was less for me about insulting any one particular artist but insulting like the fans of that person like Mm You know, if you're if you're like me, if you're in your 40s now and you still love X, Y, and Z, and I don't, like, I just I there, there's no value in me shitting on them, you know, and in essence shitting on the music of your youth, right? Like, so much of this show and this book is predicated on the idea that this music is holy to me because I was a teenager and I loved it, and I still love it, and that's so important to me and so personal to me. It's so it's more about not wanting to offend the fans than the artists necessarily, you know, the third eye, you know, he's such a special case, but what drove that episode is other people talking about him. Like it's the music, like semi-charmed life holds up. Like that record is legitimately phenomenal as an album. And I saw them on tour. I mean, it was probably five, seven years ago now, but they were great. Like even five, seven years ago, it's not the music. It's him, you know, it's his personality and all the bandmates he's alienated and all like the touring mates he's alienated and just, He does seem like just such a swaggering sort of jerk on principle. Like he's a rock star in the way that so few 90s rock stars were. You know, everybody was so tortured and mumbling and sort of trying to pretend like they weren't in the spotlight even while they were in the spotlight. And he was so different. And and so that episode does kind of stand apart as other people trashing him, but in the service of celebrating the music. You know, what I always talk about, The one genuine moment of like villainy in the show's history is the R.E.M. episode when the guest hated R.E.M. (laughs) And I wanted to try that once. I wanted one time for the guest to hate the song or the artist. And like, I love R.E.M. so much. I love Night Swimming the song so much. It's like, I'm going to be gushing about this. It's going to be ridiculous. We need a counterbalance. Let's get the guy who hates R.E.M. to come on. And he did. He was great. And he made a great case. You know, for why they weren't the greatest necessarily, but like people are still mad at me and mad at me and they should be mad at me because I brought him on and he did great at what I asked him to do. But it's I I don't think I'm glad I did that. I'm glad I tried that. But I do think that there is a core of sort of kindness to this show that I do. I do cherish and I do try and protect you know, and I just, even with something like Achy Breaky Heart with the mm-hmm. Macarena, right? I think what people hate about those songs isn't the songs, it's the ubiquity of the mm-hmm. songs. It's the fact that it was rammed down your throat, that you heard it 200,000 times, even if you didn't want to, you know, you didn't buy the CD, you didn't go to the show, but it was everywhere. It was inescapable. And that's what you hate. You know, I, just, I don't need to hear Cotton Eye Joe ever again, <laughs> but like, it's not their fault. You know what I mean? It's funny Billy Ray
0: Cyrus I don't ever have to hear Achy Breaky Heart again but you, you know, like it? I said I, I work do for we we don't play it no but we do a thing on Billy's birthday every year so every every day on my morning show we let the audience pick a song that we're going to play so we put it up on Twitter there's a poll you can choose which of the three Fair. or four songs or whatever then we play the winner every day on his birthday we put Achy Breaky Heart against Achy Breaky Heart we're like look we're playing it so just get over it it's playing today this will be the one time <laughs> this year that. <laughs>
1: that's a cool poll
0: we always have fun that's with great. that one uh, so I was interested to see how the book was going to come together because obviously the podcast is I mean it's about one song quote unquote but you talk about a lot more than one song in each episode but I was curious how you were going to form the book together and I kind of love what you did in that you put a lot of the songs into sort of categories and then sort of Mm -hmm. make them a family in a way am I describing that the right way?
1: That's a bit, I make them a family is a really lovely way to put it. And I really, really dig that. You know, it's obviously I start out and it's like, I got 600,000 words of scripts of raw material and I can't just throw that in a book and call it a day. Like I have to radically condense this, you know? And so now what I want to do, make them a family is such a rad way to put it. I yeah, just I got 10 chapters. I had 120 or so songs. And I just want to make connections that haven't necessarily been made before. And some of them are personal to me. Like the book ends with just a lot of songs with personal connections to me that don't necessarily hang together in any sort of musical sense, right? To go from Tom Petty, you know, to Janet Jackson, to Lisa Loeb, you know, the connective tissue there is just an intense emotional experience that I had, you know, involving these songs. And, you know, at the end of the book, I think hopefully that the rest of the book is sort of justified having a chapter that's sort of oriented around very personally my experience. But the sellout chapter, right? Like there's the Green Day selling out. There's the Coolio selling out. There's the no doubt selling out or the mighty, mighty Boston's. There's the Pantera not selling out. You know, I just sort of interrogating that idea, you know, that was so 90s and sort of left in the 90s. You know, we think of it now as just an artifact, a mentality we do not have anymore. You know, we would not begrudge a Green Day for signing to a major label, you know, to get their music to more people. The idea that that was some sort of betrayal is so very 1994. But I do think that, you know, there are many different definitions of of selling out, you know, so let's try and amass, you know, get 12 songs together that sort of explore that idea.
0: Yeah, I think you did a great job with it too. It's been, I'm about halfway through so far and just been fascinating to read through and really get more of you and your insight because I think along with the nostalgia, I just, I appreciate someone who has a a fandom in their heart for a lot of this music too. You know, I, I like reading a rock critic's words about songs they appreciate, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. I don't think I've ever been a particularly like trashing things sort of critic, you know, like I do, I have enormous respect for rock critics who who pan records well, who trash records well, you know, and it's like, I grew up reading Rolling Stone, spin, pitchfork, you know, and like the negative reviews are more fun, you know, and more memorable and more impactful often than the positive reviews, you know, and I've tried my hand at that from time to time with, you know, with nominal success. But I, I again, I do think this show just worked better, as a celebration, you know, because like you're into whatever you're into and you were into whatever you were into. And that's so precious to you. At this point, and I don't want to mess with that or try and talk you out of liking something just because I don't like it. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Uh, so we're at a point in the podcast world that you've got about 11 or 12 episodes left, I think, before you hang it up. And I, I don't want, you know, I'm not going to ask you who you're going to do at the end here because I actually like <laughs> being surprised. I've got a list of songs that I've been working with to see if you'd go with some of these oh, songs. Awesome. But I'm, I'm kind How of. Am I doing? Well, so far, yeah, pretty I good. It. I mean, I don't think there's been any like real misses. There have been some, like like there are certainly yeah. some artists that were more on the fringe that I didn't know you were going to like Portishead. I love Portishead. I didn't know you were going to use yeah. Portishead in the show. You know what I mean? Like there were artists like yeah, that.
1: Yeah.
0: Or Sunny Day Real Estate. I'm a big fan of theirs. I loved them when I was in
1: high school. Yeah, you know, yeah. that, it was, was a, that was a more obscure one. Relatively. Yeah. For I mean, sure. People-
0: Great Ooh, to see okay. him there, but I, I didn't see them making it <laughs> into this point over, say, Garth Brooks or something. You know what I mean?
1: Right. No, I get you. I totally get you.
0: I'm yeah. curious. Yeah. Everybody has suggestions for you, I'm sure. Your friends, family, whatever have all said, Hey, you got to do this song. What's the weirdest
1: one that someone has said to you? What's the weirdest one? What's weird and how often it comes up, and I'm still wrestling with this, is the tragically hip. Interesting. Who are Canadian, like, I, I think if you were in Canada, they were huge. I think it's very hard to understand how huge they are in Canada if you don't live in Canada. But I've had so many people swear to me. And I sort of knew them as like, they're not a jam band, but like jam band adjacent, yeah. like sort of in the same universe as DMB. Counting Crows, maybe a couple hits on the radio for me, like I remember a head by a century at some point, you know, but I think it's almost a fish situation where it's not necessarily about individual records or songs like just they're so culturally impactful in Canada and I've meant to do the deep dive and meant to do that forever. And I very well may, like, I just, I I have, you're right. I have 10, 11 episodes left. I know what they are. I, I know what they could be. I know what they are right now, but that could change. Like Portis head was on the bubble for a very long time. And then I just sort of woke up one day. I was like, I want to do it. Like, I want to try and keep open that flexibility to swerve, if only in my own head. And so, all right, I'm trying to think of who else there was a huge run of Blind Melon. Mm. Like, I, it almost felt coordinated, which I guess I can't rule out. But I just, I it was like a half dozen to a dozen people. So, and like, that's valid, right? Like, No Rain was massive, you know? And that's a fascinating story. And I sort of snuck that into the Soundgarden episode a little bit. But it's it's no one suggestion on its own is weird. It's when I get a bunch you know, about something that I wouldn't necessarily have expected. And I really dig that. And of course it does. This stuff does influence me. You know, like I, I try to answer every DM email that I get. I try and I love suggestions. You know, I love them even when they're phrased as like, what is wrong with you? Why haven't you done that yet? (laughs) You know, I dig that. I dig that energy too, honestly
0: yeah Blind Melon was the other one I I knew there was something else that uh, I had listened to in one of the shows and I was like literally no one else that I've ever met knows the song Galaxy by Blind Melon
1: and then here comes Rob Harvilla that was my song song, man that was it was this I just listen to alternative rock radio all day every day Mm -hmm. you know for the entire 1990s, I have so many songs in my head, you know, like that, you know, and like, I heard No Rain a billion times and I, I, I dug it. Okay. But like Galaxy was the one that connected with me, you know, maybe as like the underdog. I don't know what it was, but I really liked that song. And I still do. Yeah.
0: Well, I think what I need is 8,500 words on Tal
1: Bachman's She's So High, if you want to dive into that one. Whoa! <laughs> said that to me? That's a good song. Is he English? What is he? I think he's Canadian,
0: right? Because isn't he the son of Bachman Turner Overdrive? Isn't he?
1: That's correct. She's so high. Canadian. There he is. Extremely Canadian. 1999. That's the other thing, right? Is like the 90s, like culturally decades don't begin in 1990 and end at the dawn of 2000, Right. right? You know, like. That the myth, of course, is that like the 90s start with Smells Like Teen Spirit, which is arguable, right? Like before that, it feels like an extension of the 80s. Once you get into 98 and 1999, like Eminem and Britney Spears do not feel canonically 90s, right? Like they feel beyond that. And so I, I wouldn't have guessed that was 99, but I guess that, yeah, that was a song like I heard a billion times, you know, on early 2000s pop radio. Like that would be a great episode. Bachman Turner Overdrive, man. I'm into it. I'll put on the list. I well,
0: don't think
1: I've ever gotten before and I'm I'm psyched. If you need a guess
0: for that one, you know where to find me. All right. I do know where to find you. Well Rob listen I uh, I appreciate your time seriously you've uh, you've course, brought me so course. much enjoyment over the last couple of years I've really loved following along with this podcast I love the book I'm glad there's like you know another component that I can take with me to enjoy on a different level yeah. with this it's brought yeah. me down so many great trips down memory lane it's a lot of music I loved growing up like you yeah. I was an alternative rock radio listener from the first, you know, All moment right. that I can think of back then. So I just, uh, I love it, man. 60 songs that explain the 90s. I can't wait to see what else you come up with here for the last few episodes.
1: Thank you so much, dude. This has been awesome. It's an honor.
0: Well, Rob, thank you very much. And uh, yeah, yeah, hopefully somewhere down the line we'll chat again. I've uh, been looking forward to this love moment. To, absolutely. This was one of my yeah, things. I'll... I was like, I don't know if I want to talk to him because I'm such a fan that I'm going to fuck it up.
1: <laughs> I don't know if I want to <laughs> do it. <laughs> I don't think you fucked it up. I you know, I think I fuck things up all the time, though. I don't want to tell you your business, but it seemed all right to me.
0: Big thank you to Rob Harvilla from 60 Songs That Explained the 90s. His book, titled the same, is available now. It would make a fantastic gift for any music fan in your life if you're trying to find something for the holidays. you know, I really, truly believe that. Thank you to all of you for listening. Until next time, be well.